Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Today on the show, it's just us. We have a lot to talk about. Jasmine is going to give us a lawsuit update where she talks about several of the lawsuits winding their way through various courts, federal and state, uh, that involve issues that are important to Kentucky politics. I am going to talk about Metro Louisville passing its budget. That's kind of following up on, we talked about the mayor's budget address back in April. We're going to do a very short COVID update, and then we have several quick hits that address several different issues uh, involving legislative hearings and lots of other things. So without any further ado, let's get to Jasmine's lawsuit update. Okay, so first is a fish and wildlife lawsuit. So um, Larry Richards, who is listed in the Herald Leader article as a sportsman, from Oldham County. A sportsman. Uh-huh. Um, he's filed a lawsuit in Franklin Circuit Court seeking the removal of Rich Storm as Fish and Wildlife Commissioner. And that case has been assigned to Judge Philip Shepard. Okay. Um, so w- before we go any further, I just want to make sure I understand the players in this correctly. Because this is kind yes. of an update. So Rich Storm was put in place by, the go- by Governor Bevin, right? Yes. And then Governor Bashir like, basically tried to get him fired. Yes. Uh, but he was unsuccessful. And the legislature intervened, right? And they, like, basically got him his old job at his old salary by passing a law to give it to him. And now this guy is suing. Yes. All right. I got yeah, it. Yeah, I had, like, a whole paragraph about the background. and Oh, no. You kind of did it more succinctly. Um, yeah, so- <laughs> I should have read ahead. <laughs> um, so... The legislature passed the bill over Bashir's veto that allowed the Fish and Wildlife Board to appoint its own commissioner and set the salary for the job. There's also a lawsuit over the authority of the commission pending in the Court of Appeals. So that's a lawsuit that already exists, and there's no ruling from the Court of Appeals yet, so I don't know what the outcome of that is going to be. But this is just a sportsman from Oldham County suing in Franklin Circuit Court, and the suit is alleging Open Meetings Act violations. So there's already an attorney general opinion that found that the commission violated open meetings three times last year. One of those meetings had to do with Rich Storm as commissioner. Because of the open meetings violations, he is asking Storm to be removed as commissioner for the remedy of those violations. And so Kentucky law allows people to file a suit in circuit court to enforce open records law. So that's what is happening here. Got it. I don't know if the remedy of that lawsuit would be like the removal. That we need an open records expert to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Where's Amy Um, Benson-Haver? Let's get her on the phone. Yeah, so I don't know like the strength of this lawsuit, Um, but it's happened. So there's now like two different lawsuits that have to do with Rich Storm as commissioner of fish and wildlife going on. Right. And and I guess probably if you are somebody who's strategizing to get him removed, those like come at different angles and one of them might succeed and the other one might fail. It's just seems like a multi-pronged attack, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. That's what's going on there. Oof, wild stuff. Both fish and wild stuff. Yeah. Okay. So number two is a bit of an update to the Sunrise Children's Services story that you talked about last week. So. Uh-huh. Um, You summarized the contract dispute between Sunrise and the Bashir administration, and the argument is about whether a provision barring discrimination 
based on sexual orientation needs to be included in the contract. And Sunrise argues that the provision would infringe on their religious beliefs. Gotcha. And you mentioned that there was a case before the Supreme Court of the United States that could impact what happens with Sunrise. And that ruling was actually handed down the very next day. Yeah. After we recorded. The curse of the podcast. Yeah. So I thought we would like talk just briefly about that opinion, which is Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. So the SCOTUS opinion was unanimous, but it is also pretty narrow. So the Fulton case had to do with it's a Catholic foster agency, just the same as uh, okay, Sunrise. Right. Yeah. So the Supreme Court case had to do with whether the city was going to keep their contract because they wouldn't allow gay couples to adopt. And so it, it's kind of a similar case. And so where the Supreme Court started in its decision is looking at this landmark case, Employment Division versus Smith. And that case says that with a law that's generally applicable, you don't have to apply strict scrutiny. And a law is not generally applicable if the government has a system of individual exemptions or if it prohibits religious conduct but not secular conduct. Okay. So those are the two ways that the court can say this is not generally applicable. Okay. So the contract in this case had a provision that stated that the commissioner could reject someone at their sole discretion. So basically, this provision makes it so that it's a system with individual exemptions. So the Supreme Court says that it's not a generally applicable law. Okay. Basically, because of this one sentence that says that the commissioner can reject someone at its sole discretion, that makes it individualized. Right. Um, so, since it's not generally applicable, strict scrutiny applies. And so, strict scrutiny means that the government must have a compelling interest and it has to be a narrowly tailored law. So, that's why the city of Philadelphia loses in this case. Right. And so it really comes down to this sole discretion provision in their contract. So the way this could impact our case is it depends on the language of the contract. And yeah, I don't know if we have that in ours. And I think, you know, since this decision came down, Repu Republicans have been like, see, you have, you know, you have to renew the contract. And the Bashir administration has kind of been like, we're looking at it, and they haven't really said much other than that. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the Kentucky case is certainly going to head to some sort of court, uh, federal or state, on some level, because unless, unless the Bashir administration backs down, which is something they could certainly do. This decision, yeah, it seems it seems like they narrowly tailored it in order to get nine justices on there, because even the liberals kind of sided with them, and I think that the it was kind of like a divide the baby type situation. Like we can do a, a you know, five, four decision, or I guess six, three now, uh, that really takes a big bite out of LGBTQ rights, or you guys can come along and we'll make it a lot more narrow. And that's kind of seems the politics of it. Yeah, definitely. And while it was nine, Oh, there were a lot of like concurring right. opinions. And so some justices are talking about getting rid of, 
the standard from employment division. Um, some are talking about, okay, if we do that, what are we replacing it with? And this is kind of what the majority did was like apply the laws it is without like really creating any like super new precedent. Right. Um, so, you know, they just applied strict scrutiny because of that one provision that made it not generally applicable and that's how the city loses. Right. So yeah, I don't know if we're heading in a direction where we're going to change the law on this, but for now, I think this decision is pretty narrow. Yeah. And it's going to depend on, you know, what the language of our entire contract says in the Kentucky case. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. One thing I'm going to be watching for is I think that, you know, obviously people who watch the courts are going to look, look to Kentucky to see how this uh, a decision impact, like is implemented. Uh, but I think the more interesting thing for people in Kentucky is how the legislature responds. They tried to write something into the budget last year, uh, and obviously the governor's tried to sidestep it. But the legislature kind of has a path now, right, to write laws that would fit within the, you know, confines of this specific decision. And I think that they may do that. So, anyways, we'll see. Yeah, I think you're right. That's something to look out for in the future. Yeah. All right, and then the last lawsuit that I want to talk about is the parole hearing lawsuit. So last week I talked about Daniel Cameron filing a suit to challenge a new parole board policy that would prevent serve outs at the first parole hearing. Um, and he's joined by a Commonwealth attorney in that lawsuit. And late last week, Laurel Circuit Court Judge Michael Caperton granted the Commonwealth's motion for a temporary injunction. And so what this means is that Parole hearings for people who would fall within this new policy are now on hold and they cannot get their hearings while this case is pending. Right. Um, and then there's also another similar lawsuit filed by a Commonwealth attorney in Pulaski County. Um, so it looks like this is something that's maybe going to be challenged around the state before certain circuit court judges. Um, so I don't know if this will end up all ending up all of these cases like before the Court of Appeals. and <laughs> So... Right now, there's just a temporary injunction until there's a ruling on the merits in yeah. the Laurel County case. This is a spoiler for the quick hits, Jasmine, but I kind of think it may end up in the, um, uh, there may be not much standing to be had here. So we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Uh, all right. Any more lawsuits that we need to know about? No, I think that's it. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I have lots of other things to talk about. So let's talk a little bit about the Metro Council passing their amended budget. So Louisville Metro's budget cleared its first hurdle this week when the Metro Council passed an amended, amended budget without too many changes from the mayor's suggestions. So back in April, we talked about Mayor Fisher's budget address. The major headline at the time was that the police budget increased from about $5 million to about $19 million. Um, but we noted at the time that uh, $5 million of this increase was due to Bevan-era pension cost increases and not necessarily due to just, like, giving police extra money. The council passed the police budget with a few changes. So um, there was a $3 million program, which is attempts to use behavioral health specialists instead of police, and that's now going to be operated through emergency services and not LMPD. And I think, actually, that's something that you suggested immediately. You are like, this sounds like a good idea, but the fact that it's in the police department makes me not trust it. I think that that's sort of what you said. 
Yeah, I um, think it is. <laughs> and, and moving into EMS, like uh, that's smart. I think yeah. that I mean, you know, that that's probably politically smart. Uh, but I also just think it's a smart idea because a lot of the people who don't want um, police officers necessarily responding to them don't have police respond to them. That's a good idea. Okay, the next thing is that the Synergy Project, which uh, I do remember we made fun of the fact that it was called the Synergy Project. It was It's kind of like a corporate buzzword that gets used a lot. The mayor re- requested $650,000 to fund it, uh, but that's over. The, the council just kind of took that out of the budget and said, nope, no more Synergy uh, to be had here. The council also requested an, an additional $1.5 million in legal services for the police due to the DOJ investigation. I guess you're not going to get any cut of that, Jasmine. That's too bad. No. Uh, yeah, the, the, the police department now going to have to get more lawyers to deal with the DOJ in, uh, investigation. This is actually a change that the mayor supported. The investigation was announced right as the mayor gave his address. So basically, he didn't put it in his budget for, you know, because he didn't know that they were going to need it. But they are going to need better lawyers to deal with the federal investigation. So that money is now going to go into the budget. Knowing that you need, like, more legal services for the police in our city budget, like, doesn't bode well. Um, I don't know. I think even if you do are doing a great job, like, you need to have people advocate for you if you're going to be investigated. That's like, I didn't do anything wrong. As a defense attorney, you probably know not doing anything wrong does not necessarily mean that the court is going to find in your favor without good legal representation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I... I believe in legal representation for anyone who needs it, but I feel like it doesn't bode well for like the results of the DOJ investigation. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if this necessarily, this specific thing necessarily bo- doesn't bode well, but there are a lot of other signs that don't bode well yeah. for sure. Yeah, that's that's definitely the case. Uh, one place that many thought the council might change the mayor's budget was in salaries for police officers. However, there was only a few slight tweaks. There's still about $9 million in spending to potentially increase salaries for police officers, depending on the outcome of labor contract adjustments that are going to happen in 2021. So a relevant quote from the budget chairman uh, in the Louisville Metro Council, that's Bill Hollander. He said, quote, we can't keep losing LMPD officers at a rate that we're losing them and have better and having better pay is a way to have a better, better police force, unquote. Jasmine, I'm actually interested in your opinion on this. Uh, I mean, I kind of think that, you know, if you don't pay police officers well, you're going to get people who are not good at doing the job applying to do it. But then again, spending more money on police officers doesn't seem to have resulted in better policing in the past. So what do you think about this logic that Bill Hollander has? I just think there should be less of them. Like, we we can pay them a decent wage and just have less of them actually investigating. I mean, most of the time when I see police stopping someone, like the other day I saw someone stopped at a park near my house and there were like five or six police cars with about a dozen officers. And, of course, I think we need to fund, like, education and housing and and do all of those things but if we're just talking about like the police department i think there are better ways to use the money and i think we can pay fewer officers a decent wage and i don't know i i think that the police officer salaries are actually pretty good considering that you can be like 21 years old coming onto the police force, making more than I do as a public defender. So 
That makes sense to me. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I don't know much about police officer salaries and how they stack up or what police officers get paid. But it sounds like you, as somebody who knows more about this, says that that the logic that Bill Hollander is espousing about you know not wanting to lose officers kind of makes sense. But that we might have been able to do that more effectively by right sizing the police department. Uh, and giving you know officers the salaries uh, that he's asking for in a smarter way. Yeah, I mean the answer to all of this for me comes down to like funding other things so that we don't need as many police officers. So yeah. like that's my opinion on pretty much anything that has to do with any budget about police funding. And so um, I kind of always have the same answer, but that that is how I feel. Yeah. I think that they don't make a ton, but I, I feel like they make a pretty reasonable starting salary. Uh, there are several other major changes that the council made. Uh, a lot of them involve libraries. Another one of your favorite things, Jasmine. Yes, I do love libraries. Yeah, okay, so there's going to be a $2 million... What rent- was my other favorite thing? Nothing else here was my favorite <laughs> Another thing you have lots of opinions about. Let's just put it that way. Uh, all right, so uh, there's, been a, there's going to be a $2 million renovation to the Portland Library. Um, and a $500,000 renovation to the Parkland Library and a $1 million renovation to the Fern Creek Library. So Parkland and Fern Creek, those libraries have actually been closed for a long time. This could be a move towards reopening. Uh, that is not something that's been announced yet, but I think that the tea leaves probably point to that. Uh, potentially a, a new couple new libraries that have been uh, people in neighborhoods uh, had libraries for a long time. They were shut down uh, and now they may have them again. So that's great. Uh, and then also the Portland Library getting, I think, probably what looks like potentially could be, uh, you know, you know, like a, a new fancification like they had in the Linden Library or the South. Is it Southwest Library? The other one that got the really nice upgrade. I don't remember where it is. South Central South is Central. really nice. That's and the mine one. is Northeast. Northeast. Uh, Linden. It's in Linden, though. But the Northeast Library and the South Central Library are both very fancy now. Portland, with two million bucks, may be headed that direction also. Okay, uh, there was also $10 million added to the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, and then there were $4.5 million in additional sidewalk and road repair spending. That's in addition to $22 million that was allocated by the mayor. Yeah, so that's that spending that extra $4.5 million unlocks a significant amount of federal money, uh, according to the council. So it sounds like libraries uh, was a big chunk of this budget, in, in addition to, you know, affordable housing and uh, better sidewalks and roads, which, you know... I support I support that stuff. That seems good. Yeah, I'm definitely glad that. I don't know. It seems like a couple years ago we were just like continuing to like decrease library funding. So yeah, that's definitely a good thing. Something that I'm surprised that hasn't been a major discussion is whether like there will be any future funding for like the youth detention center, which was the big cut from one of the last, the most recent budgets, ever since that happened, it's been a headache for anyone involved. And even, like, the police, I think, would support having a youth detention center here, but so would advocates on the other side. And so I'm surprised that that hasn't come up as something to talk about for the future, whether they're going to start funding that again. Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, not something that came up in any of the coverage, so I guess it probably wasn't addressed in this budget, but, uh, you know, next time we have a budget will be, I think, Mayor Fisher's last. So, mm-hmm. who knows? Who knows, Jasmine? We'll see. We'll see what happens. 
Uh, all right. One major change this year is that instead of each council member receiving, you know, a fund to spend on their own district, um, the money has been pooled to be spent by the whole council. So uh, Republicans had actually been doing this for years. And I guess the Democrats decided it was a good idea and, and got into it. So basically, there's a million dollars in the budget that got split 26 ways. And, you know, as a council person, you could like fund your uh, community ministries group or repair one sidewalk or do some sort of special project. And the Republicans basically, because twenty a million dollars split 26 ways, there's not a lot to do mm-hmm. any sort of like civic, civic stuff. They just put all of the Republican money together and like did a bigger project in one area. And they kind of rotated whose district it was in. And it sounds like now they're all doing it together. Uh, and the biggest recipient of the money is the Goodwill Another Way program, um, which is a, a program that works with unhoused people to uh, get them, you know, paid day, lab, day labor and, and food. So like something to do during the day uh, that gets them some sort of pay uh, and, and, a, and a meal. So, uh, you know, it seems like a cool project. I don't know much about it, but, you know, it's something that all 26 members seem like they agreed with. So there you go. The, the council amendment, the amended budget did pass unanimously. So there were nobody that, that was like railing against it there at the end. So there you go. That is the Louisville budget. All right. So we're going to do a very short COVID update this week. Our COVID numbers continue uh, as a, at a slight but pre- a present decline. So the seven-day rolling average of new cases dropped to less than 200. That's about where we were at the very beginning of the crisis uh, when we were wondering how bad it would get. Do you remember that, Jasmine? I was like, oh, are we just going to have like 220 cases every day forever? Um, that was like April, May, June time. And it, it went up from there. Yeah, it, <laughs> that, it didn't stay that way for long. <laughs> I remember the first day we had like 700 cases and I was like, oh, no. Yeah. yeah, and it's wild to think that, you know, there were days in the winter when we were seeing like 5,000 cases a day, which is just insane. Anyways, we're now kind of in the opposite situation. Instead of thinking about how bad it will get, we're like, is it ever going to get any better than 200? Because we've kind of been declining very slightly for a very long Mm -hmm. time. It's like, is it going to get to zero? I think probably not. Um, Vaccinations remain mostly stable. About 5,000 people in Kentucky are getting their first shot every day. Um, That's a lot lower than where we were at our peak. But it's definitely not nothing. I think that that's something to be remembering, you know, as you're thinking like, you know, how can people, you know, not know that they need to get vaccinated? 5,000 people every day get vaccinated. That's like the size of a small town in this in this state. So there you go. On Tuesday, there were six orange counties and 14 green counties. Louisville had 172 positive case for COVID or positive tests for COVID last week. That's the lowest amount since April 4th, 2020. That was only the third week that the health department recorded results. So, yeah, there are no weeks after April, early April, that had more cases than that. So in Louisville, we've gotten basically as good as it was at the very, very beginning when things were first kicking off for COVID. All right. And then uh, Lexington had 60 cases, which is minuscule. That's They're on pace to have their lowest monthly total for since May 2020. So that's that's very good for them. Okay, Woodford, Franklin, and Fayette counties crossed over 60% vaccinated recently, and and that's really great for them. There are a significant number of counties nearing 50% total vaccination. Oldham's at 49, Anderson's at 48, Jessamine's at 47, Clark's at 45, Henry's at 44, Bourbon's at 45. Uh, A lot of the counties that are in that uh, kind of almost half of the people that have been vaccinated are the Golden Triangle 
They're somewhere between Louisville, Lexington, and Northern Kentucky. Um, but Lyon County, outside of that, has 47% vaccinated. Um, maybe that's due to the prison. The big There's a big prison there. But there's also uh, a pretty significant healthcare worker population. Maybe it's both of those things together that got them to about that level. And then Perry County um, in southeastern Kentucky is at 44%. So good for the folks there in Hazard. That's Hazard, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got it right. All right. So there you go. 19 people died from COVID last week. That's a tragedy. There's no getting around that. Uh, every death at this point from COVID is a preventable death. That's something to keep in mind. Uh, but it's worth remembering that there was one day in December when more than 70 people died from COVID. So looking at 19 people dying in a week, uh, that's significantly better than where we were. And and that's something to be celebrated, I think. So shorter COVID uh, update this week, Jasmine. But, you know, how are you feeling? Feeling good? Yeah, I, you know, I wish we could get more people vaccinated, even though... Like you said, 5,000 a day is not nothing. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, we could have a lot higher totals. I was surprised that, so you mentioned that Woodford, Franklin, and Fayette crossed over 60%. The next two counties below those three for, like, top vaccination rates are Boone and Campbell. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Campbell is surprising, but Boone County was a little surprising to me because it's kind of, like, the more, like, rural more conservative part of northern kentucky yeah and they have like over 55 percent. so yeah um i think we can do it in other places and so i don't know that's that's all i'm hoping to see and of course like i always get a little bit worried about like new variants and people aren't that aren't getting vaccinated or vaccinated people who get one of the variants so I don't think like my COVID anxiety has completely gone away, but it's, yeah. it's stable. Yeah, that's say. good. That's good. Yeah, Boone County's been a great story for the vaccination effort, I would say. Um, there's a lot of things in Boone County that uh, make me very frustrated. A lot of things that we've talked about on the show before. Uh, there was that, you know, I think Ryan Quarles lawsuit that was centered in Boone County. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they haven't been well behaved this entire time. But uh, or at least not everybody in Boone County has been well behaved this whole time. But, uh, you know, they are one of the top vaccinated counties. People kind of lump Boone County in with Kenton and Campbell, but they probably shouldn't. It's a lot yeah, more conservative. It's a, it's a different demographic for sure. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it's one of the most conservative counties in the whole state of Kentucky. But, yeah, that is something that is something to be celebrated. So good job, Boone County. And Jasmine, I'm glad your anxiety is is stable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I will, I will admit to some days, like just acting as if nothing had happened. And then I'll realize like, wow, there was a pandemic we just lived through. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's what happens to me too. Like, I feel like I have, my life is pretty normal again, but I think about it or I like hear something on the radio about one of the variants or something like that. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I guess we're. Or like We're the, still kind of in this. The Olympics or somebody like Chris Paul in the NBA playoffs. Like there's something that will happen where it's like, what the heck? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Jasmine, we got lots of quick hits. Uh, that will be the end of the show. So, all right. The first up is that the JCPS held a regular school board meeting on Tuesday, uh, which, you know, they do on a regular basis. I think they're monthly. Uh, nothing on the agenda was about critical race theory, but that didn't stop about two dozen protesters from showing up and derailing the entire meeting to decry critical race theory. Um, Several of those protesters had to be escorted out of the hearing room. It got really wild. Um, Olivia Croth, who works for the Courier-Journal, she has a write-up about it and a tweet thread if if you are interested in critical race uh, theory 
content and uh, the right wing backlash to it, you should definitely check or it out. Or just if you're interested in like the wildness of what happened. People like, be crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was like an all kids matter chant oh, and dear. like people getting kicked out and yeah. it was nuts. I do think that the protester group is, is it's only two dozen people. Like they're, they're crazy two dozen people and very loud and wild, but you know, it, it's a far cry from, it's not 5,000 people. It's not even the people who showed up to like hang Andy Bashir in effigy in, earlier in last year. Clearly, they're misinformed about what they're talking about. So we have a lot of other things that we want to get to. But yeah, uh, they are, they're making their voices heard. We'll put it that way. <sighs> All right. So next up, Tuesday also saw the first meeting of the Unemployment Insurance Reform Task Force in, in Frankfurt, uh, which is, you know, put together by the state government. It was set up during the 2021 legislative session to kind of deal with the unemployment insurance issues that we've been facing over the past year. It does seem like there, there were some productive discussions about rebuilding the state's UI infrastructure that was kind of sandwiched between recriminations about the governor and the legislature's conduct during uh, the pandemic about UI. Uh, that's going to happen because it's like Republican legislators and the Governor Bashir's administration talking to each other. They're going to yell at each other and get mad, but it does seem like they did make some progress. Members of the media wanted to talk to the administration officials about the backlog of UI claims, but they were not able to. Yeah, this is an issue that the media has really wanted to talk about. And there, there have been a lot of complaints that the, the UI group it, inside of the state government and the labor cabinet specifically has not been forthcoming enough. There are a lot of people who never got their claims processed because, I mean, we've talked about it before. It was there's a crush of claims. It was an administrative administrative failure due to you know, circumstances that were made, made it impossible to succeed. Um, but yeah, I think that a lot of people do feel slighted. Uh, on one hand, I don't think that the, the governor's team is in a position to succeed here. I don't think that talking to the media would, what, what, what are you going to say? Like, we can't find these people's claims because there was an insane amount of claims and they got lost. Like, what, what's going to happen if you have, if you say that, if that is the case, um, if there's something else that's going on. Like, I just don't think that they're in a position to succeed there. Uh, and that's just a real tragedy of this of the situation. Yeah. I get that, like, the optics of it, like, come off as, like, the government's not being transparent. But I think they're in a difficult spot. Yeah, for sure. And they did answer the questions of the legislature. All right. Uh, Jasmine, you talked just a minute ago about the new parole board policy that, you know, re re regarding serve outs. Uh, that was something uh, that was one of the lawsuits you mentioned with Daniel Cameron. You talked about it last week as well. So the architect of that policy has been replaced on the parole board. So Layla Van Hoos, her term was up. And although she applied for another term, Governor Bashir replaced her with someone else. Uh, Ms. Van Hoos' term started in 2013 when Steve Bashir appointed her. And I guess probably she's been, you know, reinstated since then. Uh, but it does seem like she is gone. So, Jasmine, I don't know. This may mean I think that the policy itself may be changing, and that's kind of why I said there might be a standing issue, or what it might be moot. Isn't that what they call it? If they take the policy away and then they mm -hmm. try to sue about it. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but, you know. Yeah, what I'm not sure about, I'm not sure about the people who had been, like, granted new hearings under that policy. Yeah. What happened. 
Yeah, that was another part of the policy. You know, there's this has been a complicated story to get our heads around, and you've done a really good good job explaining a, an intense legal situation to those of us who aren't involved in parole <laughs> ever. Uh, but I didn't realize that they reopened the hearings to people who were given serve outs uh, at their first meeting as well. Mm-hmm. So that was like forty five people or something that you know had the possibility of you know hope for the first time in a really long time yeah. for these people. So yeah, that would be that would be interesting. So yes, that is that is the other thing. Uh, I think that's too bad, but you know, there are probably other parts of her job as well. And the last quick hit is that Quintez Brown, who is a Louisville activist and a Courier Journal op-ed writer, he's missing. Um, he's 20 years old. He was last seen on June 19th. Several search parties have been out looking for him, but this is a real tragedy and a really scary situation. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you've been in Louisville and pay attention to the media, this is something you've seen a lot about. Uh, there's there's a whole group uh, organized that is looking for information. So if you have any, you know, you definitely, definitely send it to them. Uh, but yeah, I, this is, yeah, a real weird, but also very scary situation. You know, our thoughts are with, with Quintez and all the people uh, in his family that are missing him and, you know, the whole community of people over there that care about him. All right, Jasmine, that is it for us today. How can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKYPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at Patreon.com slash MyOldKentuckyPodcast. And we are part of the Dimcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Shine.